Our purpose is so important to our leadership and not always easy to find, let alone to land a role that aligns to it. Today, I'm speaking to someone who is not only living that purpose, but whose story is rich with insights from dealing with feeling like an imposter, being intentional with her career and her visibility, accessing the power of mentors, and developing her leadership capability with real humility and courage. Hi, I'm Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a podcast offering insights for women leaders. Why grit in the oyster? Well, because an oyster makes pearls from a foreign object or irritation. And that's often how we can feel as women leaders in organizations today. The trick is not to get spat out, but to grow into that natural gem. Through conversations with leaders and experts in the field of women in leadership, I hope to offer insight and inspiration as well as practical advice, helping you navigate those grit in the oyster moments or times in your career. It's an opportunity to reflect, to step out of the fray, to tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. So Kiora, welcome to this episode of Grit in the Oyster. I'm currently in Auckland, New Zealand, sipping coffee and eating my sister Melanie's delicious shortbread with Una Jagos. Una is New Zealand's Solicitor General and Chief Executive of the Crown Law Office. That is, she is the New Zealand government's chief legal advisor and advocate in the courts and was appointed Queen's Counsel in 2016. Una has an extensive litigation history and taught the public law module for the master's program in public policy at Victoria University. Throughout her career, she's worked in four major government agencies, including the Ministry of Commerce and the Government Communication Security Bureau. A very warm welcome, Una. Thanks, Penny. Great to be here. Listen, you have had a phenomenal and have a phenomenal legal and public sector career. How did you get there? Where did did it start? Tell us your story. Sure. It's a great question because some days I wonder the same thing. (laughs) How did I get here? Um, And I think it's, I hope it's something that kind of resonates with your listeners to say that sometimes still my connection about myself and who I think I am and the role that I have, uh, there's sometimes a dislocation there and I have to work quite hard to think actually, I am the Solicitor General of New Zealand, and not in a big-headed way, but in a way that aligns myself and my values and my job. Because, you know, in the past I would have seen that role holder as, you know, someone akin to God. Yes. um, And to be in it and to realise that isn't so. But remembering that other people might see me in the way that I would have once seen that person. So how do you align all those things anyway? But more prosaically, perhaps, I'll tell you how I got there. Yeah. Um, I went to law school and I was saying to a group of people only yesterday that, you know, that was just what was expected, that I would go to university. So I'm very lucky, grew up in a very privileged, secure, well-educated environment, um, and it was always expected I'd go to university, so I did. And I did a law degree. My brother um, had done a law degree, and my other siblings, sisters, the other siblings, um, had all done university qualifications. And I did law, I think, because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um I was good at talking. Um, That seemed like a good reason to go into (laughs) law. So off I went. Um, And I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I had it. You didn't want to be a lawyer. No. And, you know, listeners will be relieved to know that I did finish and I am a qualified lawyer. (laughs) But um, I had this view that lawyers were the sorts of lawyers that I, you know, would see on television, which obviously is not a good place for inspiration about real life. But at 18 and 19, that was what I knew. And I knew the private sector law firm model from television 
um, I knew the kind of all the old tropes of the person that just worked day and night yeah. um, for someone else's bottom line. Money was king. I didn't want any of that. I knew early on I didn't want any of that. So I did a law degree and I didn't want to be a lawyer. I did a degree. It was pretty average. Um, extremely <laughs> average, actually. <laughs> Got the degree. Um, and went and came uh, living in Wellington in New Zealand looking for work. And it was really because I needed a job that I took my first the, the first thing I was offered, I took. Yeah. It was a job in the Ministry of Commerce, as you mentioned. Um, and it was working for a thing called Consumer Affairs where people would ring up and and they had consumer problems. Something broke, a, a credit contract was unfair. They had problems and we would provide advice for them. But but like a citizen's advice. Right, program. yeah. Or a law centre type of approach. Um and you didn't need a law degree to do that job. And as I say, the important thing was to have a job. Yes. But it was in that job that my public service fire was lit. Okay. Oh, boy. I didn't know what I wanted to do before then. And I knew sort of in a really, you know, slightly sort of embarrassing to say now way that I always thought, well, I'll do something important. I'll do something yeah. valuable. I'll do something that matters. Yes. I had no idea what any of that would be. And I had no vision about what that was. So the vision found me, I suppose, really, yeah. in that realising through working in the public service and in that particular role, in the first instance, that I could use this thing that I had, that I didn't really want, my law degree, yes. to help these people. And it was so inspiring for me to see a life that I didn't have and hadn't experienced of generally people in lower socioeconomic um, environments with punishing credit contracts or... You know, including high purchase agreements, buying stuff or borrowing because they just didn't have the basics of life, and then being so, um, am I allowed to say screwed on this podcast, yeah. being so screwed by unscrupulous you know, car dealers or money lenders or retailers. And I, for example, just, just to be clear about retailers, I mean, you know, selling people things like beds and furniture for their house on apparently no credit percentage rates but actually building a massive credit yeah. so just being ripped off huge premiums appalling. being ripped off yeah and so I really found that just so exciting place to be working and then and I moved from that bit of work into the same agency but in policy and realized oh I can yes I can help one person and one person and one person but hey working in government policy you can actually work for the government that is trying to make things better for a whole lot of people yeah kind of system type reform and in that role I worked on the Consumer Guarantees Act and the higher purchase reforms. Consumer credit was a new idea to have consumer credit protections uh, and I loved that and it yeah. was really satisfying. But in the back of my mind I kept thinking well I've got this law degree shouldn't I be a proper lawyer? Like here I am being a policy advisor or a advisor who didn't need a law degree shouldn't I go and be a proper lawyer? Um, and lots of lawyers will probably laugh when I say that I went to be a proper lawyer again in a government department I went to the Ministry of Fisheries next into their legal team as yeah. a solicitor and again I, I mean that my last job I was in it for about seven years I went to fisheries I was there for about seven years and again just finding this fascinating you know working for government helping governments do what they want to do in the legal frame but government's always trying to help the people of course yes um or governments in New Zealand anyway perhaps um and working on stuff like um, Māori fishery settlements, um, quota management—you know the way we the way we manage the resource—some big things that I didn't know about before. Uh, how do you cost recover to uh, from a whole industry to help government fund what it's doing? 
I became involved in the practice of going from policy to legislation and had some great fun in the House with the Minister as fisheries legislation would go through. So seeing up close the machinery of democracy, really, and that was cool. I also really enjoyed that. Although sometimes, you know, it's a bit like don't go to a sausage factory if you like sausages. (laughs) Sometimes being up close to the machinery of democracy was a bit surprising. But um, also seeing my role there about doing... I was doing something that mattered, you know. It wasn't about me and it wasn't... Of course I wasn't doing it alone, Far from it, but I was part of that machine that was trying to make Aotearoa a better, fairer place. So I worked at fisheries for about seven years and I um, became, or you know, applied for and became the chief legal advisor of the legal team. Yeah. And there was a lot of fisheries litigation on at the time, and at some point, and so I had a lot to do with the Crown Law Office, who, who are, were, and are the place that a lot of um, departments use for litigation and so I had a lot to do with them and at some point a vacancy came up there and one of people at Crown Law said to me should I apply for this job and it was the first time that I had a real crisis about well I can't do that job I won't be able to do that job those people are all way more intelligent than me that I'm just not capable of that job so I applied for that job and my um, partner so you, Jenny, apl- you thought that but you applied for yeah. it yeah okay so what made you apply for it? Well, I, I, yeah, good question. Because I was, I had this manager then, Peter Murray. He was my first. I didn't know this at the time, but he was my first kind of experience of being mentored yeah. by somebody who could kind of see something in me that I couldn't see in myself. Yeah. And he really encouraged me to apply for that job. I mean, he, we, he and I talked about. I was at something of a crossroads there. Did I go and kind of continue on with the lawyering, or yeah. did I start? because it was becoming evident that I had skills with people and management, as we would have called it then, leadership I recognise it now as. Um, and, and so my other options were to continue up in that agency yeah. into more senior leadership roles. And so he identified that I was at this fork in the road, yeah. and he identified that this – I think it was him who made me think, well, apply for that, because otherwise you'll never know. Yes, you can you can become more senior here, and, you know, we'd love to have you if you want to stay – but actually, you keep kind of looking at this other thing. Why yeah. don't you see what happens? And my partner, Jenny, um, we don't talk about the time now because it's a long time ago, but she had to go through a long, probably torturous phase of listening to me and helping me kind of get through this thing about yeah. what am I doing? And really She's had to do it more than once in my career. <laughs> <laughs> Poor thing. Um, and so, so I applied for the job and then I got the job. So my narrative changed only minutely yeah. to, oh, my God. What am I doing? I can't, I can't do, do this, job. and now I have to. Yeah, and oh, oof. anyway, so I remember well that feeling. Well, you know, I've had it again more than once, so it's easy to remember it. So, what do you do with that? Well, now I recognise yeah. that. Hang on a minute. You, you might be feeling out of your depth. Actually, you know, what are you here for? What are your skill sets? What are you good at? S- say the things that you don't yes. are concerned about. And actually, it's interesting. I think somehow saying things out loud about what you're concerned about can sometimes make you realise that what you're worried about is just it kind of diminishes silly. Them. Yeah. yeah. But if you, you know, let it go round and around in an unhelpful and unhealthy way internally, it amplifies. You can't get it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what that is, and you're recognising it clearly, and I sort of had to discover that for myself, that getting it out to somebody else who you trust to say yes. something, you know, might be a bit um, revealing or make you a bit vulnerable to say... But sometimes the things I was worried about were just 
nonsense. And I'll give you an example, which it just jumps ahead in the narrative a bit, if that's right. Yes. But, so I've been the Solicitor General for a little... I've been in this role for five years now. I've been in the job maybe two years, and I bumped into a, a retired Supreme Court judge at some event. And he said to me, I hear you're doing a great job. And I thought, what does he mean? Why does he... And I felt really unsettled. What does he mean by that? You know, he must be saying something... Yeah, there else. must be a hook in there. Yeah. And I got home and I said this to Jenny and she was like, well, maybe he thinks that you're, you're doing, doing a good, a good job. job. <laughs> um, it's like, yeah, oh, that's embarrassing. So sort of like, but it made me feel like something, like he was saying something else. Yeah. And so that, you know, that voice, that internal yeah. person who's not very that good for us. flicks on the negativity. Yeah. And, be, and yeah. what I've learned is to not ignore it and think, oh, that's just that yes. voice actually to recognise it and to bring it out and to make myself face up to some pretty strange things that you say to yourself yep. and to recognise that they are unhealthy. Sometimes. Yeah. They are unhealthy, but you've learned to listen to that voice wisely, yeah. not just suppress it, exactly. but get it out and it, actually I think it can't it. be suppressed. Yes. It's yeah. my own view. Maybe it's, it's just me. Yeah. It's real, but it does yeah. trigger how we feel. And it does help. I mean, and the other thing I've learned, I think, is to think about or to listen to how I feel, not just yeah. to listen to what my brain tells yeah. me. So that can be a bit of a dislocation too, I think. So I, off I went to Crown Law, and that was yeah. in 2002, heavens. And um, I thought, no, I'm going to be a real lawyer. I'm going to practice, you know, actually being a lawyer, and I'm not going to get distracted into this management thing that had sort of kind of sort of kicked me a little bit out of being a sort of proper lawyer. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's funny, it's easy to see it now, but anyway, soon I was asked to be, could I be a sort of like deputy team leader of the small group yeah. and then could I be the team leader of the small group? Um, I finally had to face the fact that management and leadership and people were a strength of mine. Yes. And lawyering is, you know, clearly also a strength, but I didn't have to fight it anymore. I, I realised I could combine those things and actually that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And so... Leap slightly ahead in the narrative. My boss at some point was now Justice Matthew Palmer, High Court Judge, but then he was the Deputy Solicitor General at Crown Law. And he also recognised, so here comes my next mentor, he also recognised that there was something um, that I needed that I wasn't getting or perhaps wasn't able to get from him. And I think maybe he recognised this now, maybe I'm just inventing history, but I think it was that I needed somebody else to talk to outside of my own organisation that I could be kind of open about my anxieties and my vulnerabilities yes. about what I was any good at. Because you can't, I mean, he was a lovely person, but you don't really want to tell that to your manager. Yes. Um, so he put me together with Carolyn Tremaine, who was then, I think she was then the Deputy Secretary at Inland Revenue. So generous of her. I mean, one of the things that I do now in this role is spend a bit of time um telling people what I've learned because I think it helps and I yes. think oh, I really benefited from these people who were so generous towards me giving she was a busy person she still is it was very generous of her to spend time with me a little bit like getting blood out of a stone sometimes I suspect yeah. about what I wanted and what I wanted to do next and it was through working with her that I thought well why don't I keep going why don't I aim to be the deputy solicitor general and that was a bit brave to think about that because I sort of thought well that you know Again, who am I thinking I could be the Deputy Solicitor General? And at the same time thinking with Carolyn, well, why the de why just the Deputy? You yes. know, why not the Solicitor General? And I just thought this ridiculous proposition that I might be the Solicitor General. But she worked, you know, what are the skills that those people have got? You know, they, those people are just people. You know, of course, I was now working quite closely with the Solicitor General. Yeah. So you could observe could everything. could see that that hand. person was just a person like yeah. everybody else. Um, 
it was at that point that I think soon after I was made deputy solicitor and it was at that point that I started to be quite deliberate about, okay, if I want to be the Solicitor General, what don't I have? Um, because, of course, I had, you know, I understood the government and how it works and I can do legal advice and I can litigate and I can see problems and solutions. But I didn't, I realised I didn't have much in, you know, how to run an organisation and yeah. to be the chief executive and how to show myself to my colleagues and to others, um, ministers, that I was a likely prospect so I went off and did some leadership training. Um, I did a course. I got home from this course and my friend said, how was the course? I said, it transformed my life. And it was just a three-day course of five days, perhaps. Yeah. Um, it was called, maybe it was called Leading for Success or something quite sort of yeah. simple. And I don't really remember now all of its ins and outs. But what it taught me was that one of my weaknesses or one of my areas of vulnerability was that I didn't like doing something that I couldn't see how it would go. And... Now that I know this about myself, you know, like, yeah. like feeling unsettled about what I'm having for dinner is because I don't can't see, you know, like I'm a can't real planner yeah. and a real control freak, actually. <laughs> um, so learning that about myself, oh, it was so revealing that they had done all this um, 360-degree yeah. feedback and then it comes through to this organisation. And what I was seeing and being told about my feedback is could not align with myself. Interesting. And this thing that, I mean, I don't think I was holding myself back in any sort of significant and damaging way but actually the thing that was in my way was me yeah. and so realizing that and being given some kind of practical tools and, and you will know them and your listeners will know them things that like uh what's a good example oh the leader who knows about when you know when it's time to get off the dance floor and head up to the balcony yeah. and have a look what's happening just all yeah. those things yeah, that they give I you now a framework for yeah, understanding exactly. how you make your leadership impact exactly yeah. and so I was doing a lot with instinct and it gave me the framing and the language to talk and think a bit differently, or perhaps the same, but with no differently, and with a different framing, and to realise that not knowing what the future held can be a real advantage because you can make <laughs> the future. Oh, so with that in mind, um, I came back to Deputy Solicitor General, and the Solicitor General, Michael Heron, and I got talking about, so how do you get yourself to this job? And he was incredibly generous again with his time and his real commitment to me. In fact, I've just come from lunch with him. It's lovely to sort of keep in touch with someone who was so committed to my yeah. development. How do we do that? So we came up with a development plan. And again, it feels like the obvious thing to say, but I learned it this way. So maybe it's a bit faster if I tell your listeners for them. Writing down what you want in your development plan is all very well. And we all have to do that these days but being incredibly specific about not the job you want, but the things that you look for in the development yeah. opportunity really helps you spot it when it comes by. And it sort of seems so obvious, but when I was thinking about what senior roles might I aspire to, I couldn't think past a lawyer job. Yeah. And when I was thinking about what secondments, oh, some advice, sorry, that I got through this leadership development centre here in, in New Zealand in Wellington, was you won't get where you, where you want to go by just doing everything the same way. You have to do something different. You've been at Crown Law for, I don't know, then probably 15 years or something. Um, you need to show the system, um, and particularly those people that will be influential in, in advising ministers about who the next Solicitor General should be, you need to show them that you can do more than yeah. just be the lawyer at Crown Law. So I was looking for opportunities to do that. I was looking very half-heartedly, I confess, for those opportunities because I really liked what I was doing. I was really comfortable. I'd been at Crown Law for 15 yeah. years. I was the Deputy Solicitor General. I didn't know everything, but I was pretty comfortable and I knew yeah. how everything worked. 
knew lots of people. You know, I was very comfortable. Um, and perhaps you can spot the kind of next theme about what I'm going to say was that I, so I had this idea that I needed to get into some other piece of work that was more central, sort of system focused, that I could expose myself and what I could do to others. Anyway, the short version of that is that I ended up being um, the acting director of the Government Communication Securities Bureau, the yeah. sort of foreign intelligence arm of government, uh, the director for a short period. It was intended to be for two months. It ended up being 12 months. Right. And I, I put my hand up for that role sort of partly to show willing that I was, you know, look at me, I'm a senior person willing to do something. Yeah. Slightly horrified to um, be invited to take on the role because even though I had had something to do with the GCSB in the past through mm. advising them as their, as their lawyer, I didn't really, I mean, I thought I knew something about it. In fact, it's only after having been there for a year that I realised I knew nothing when I went in there. But uh, so I got this job and... And it was an acting gig, and and, and Mike, um, my boss, was like, "You'll be all right, and you know, I'll keep, and I'll, I'll look out for yeah. you, and <laughs> if you need to come home, just tell me, and I'll pull on the cord." And, and you know, so I had a nice exit strategy and a lot of support from him. And like when I go into the Crown Law Office, I went into this terrible kind of turmoil of, "Oh my God, what am I thinking? I can't be the director of the GCSB." You know, this thing about this dislocation of yes. myself and this thing. So I had a real crisis of confidence again, and. One amazing thing happened that I, this course I had been on, they make you write to yourself. Yes. Lots of people have been through courses yeah. where you write to yourself and you tell yourself what you've learned and you write up your commitments that you, you know, solemnly made after a sort of five-day residential course. And, that, and it's very smart that they make you write to yourself and they post it to you several months later because, of course, you've forgotten all of that and you've come back to life and you've forgotten all your lessons and yes. you've forgotten all your commitments. And So I think I started that job on a Monday I think the Thursday before that letter arrived. Brilliant. And it was just, could not have been more awesomely timed. Yeah. And so powerful because here it was me writing to Your me voice. with the answer. Yeah. Boy, that was so clever. So it was all in you. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't was, that so give you so much confidence I when know. you know actually it's so all there. reading this letter yeah. reminding me that the fear in me was because I couldn't see what was coming. Yeah. And what is the opportunity that that gave me? Well, I launched myself at the poor, hapless GCSB <laughs> And they were really very good to me. I mean, they also were thinking, who is the, who is this coming to be our director? I'm a bit nervous about that. On the first day, I didn't know this, on the first day they had what I came to really love and in, in have implemented it at Crown Law, this regular, the boss stands up regularly in front of the whole office or whoever wants to come and is open to being questioned or talks about stuff that matters. Town halls, they called them. And on yeah. my first day, they had a town hall where everybody came to say, who is this you know, lawyer who's turning up to be our director? And one of the things that I did in thinking about how I would present myself to them, it's a great opportunity to reinvent yourself to people who don't know yeah. you, was to not to be ungenuine about who I was. I couldn't pretend to be someone else. But to say to them, this is why I'm here for these opportunities for me. And I, I know this. And this is how I want to behave. I want to be open. I want to be, you know, to hear from you what's going on, what yeah. I need to do. Um, and I just was a bit exposed to criticism that I didn't know what I was doing. So I was open about, I mean, I wouldn't have arrived and said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I was open with the idea that I didn't really yeah. especially know what I was doing, but together we would make it. Um, and boy, what a bumpy ride that year was uh, and I was completely out of my comfort zone. How, what were the big bumps? Well being in charge you know so 
being the person in charge, that was, I was surprised at the extent to which I felt that weight. Right. You know, so I had been a deputy chief executive, deputy solicitor general, so yeah. high, high up in an organisation. And no one had said, or well, it doesn't matter that no one had said, but I didn't know that I was going to feel the weight of responsibility. And in some weird way, and this goes back to probably my control freak tendencies, um, it was almost freeing to be the one who had to make some calls. Yeah. And what I learned about that was that that freedom that I found kind of came to be real because sometimes I didn't have to just make a decision. I, it was very, you know, some things can be very consensus-based. You know, you come yeah. to a view and that's what you go on and do. But there were a few times where um, my leadership team and I were at odds about the next thing, the right yeah. thing. And so I was very deliberate about making sure that I heard from people, that I understood people's impacts, and I understood kind of the emotion in the issues. They were employment-y type things that were high in emotion. And then finally coming to the view, the one that I knew I could live with, or the one that made sense to me for my values and who I was. And I think, I mean, it's freeing that you have to stand by your decisions mm-hmm. and so you better make sure that they're the ones you're happy to stand by and they are congruent with what yeah. you're doing there and who yeah. you are yeah and that I, I don't even really almost understand what I mean to say that I find that a freedom but I find this yeah. too now as as what am I sister general um some decisions taken they are not you know they're not life and death hard but they're hard say legal a point about should we go this way or that way on this yeah. point of law I mean, the law is highly contestable, of course, and um, no one person ever gets to call it uh, until you get to the Supreme Court, I guess, and then a majority of of them get to call it. But you come to questions that are quite difficult, and I feel the freedom of being able to say, I've gone through a process. I put people at the centre of my process always, and I try and take myself out. I mean, this is another sort of lesson I think I have learned that um, how do you make sure that you're, that you, the ego, I don't mean the kind of, I mean, I'm not an ego-driven person in that sort of traditional way, but how do you get yourself, the yeah. ego, out of this situation? That's not so much an issue with legal issues, really. It tends to be more about people, those sorts of things. But even then, it might be something where you have firmly taken a view about the law to X point, and people say, mm, I'm not sure about that. You do need to get yourself out of that. And the number of times that I haven't, having had this revelation that sometimes you need to stand aside from it and be a bit dispassionate about that in order to view it clearly and then to make sure that you are able to lead that or to stand by it and say, yes, this is right for whatever reasons, including you know my values and who I am. Boy, knowing yourself is so important. Yes. As I think, isn't it? But I think about sort of that genuine leadership that everybody strives for. Because once you know yourself and your decisions are consistent with who you are and who you say you are, well, the road just gets a lot easier. So has that been quite important for you, that, you know, when, especially in a very senior leadership role in terms of your decision-making, distancing yourself? I love the way that you, you, were, you know, talked in a, very, um, in a way that just brought it to life. You distance yourself. But then once the decision is done, then you kind of embrace it and That's say, right. is this, is this our, I'm not distancing myself. You can't is, be distanced from it. Is this me? Yeah. Is it congruent with yeah. my values? Do I understand that? And it takes a, mm. it takes a, another run through. Yeah. And then you take the hard decision if it needs to be. Yes. Difficult. I mean, even hearing you play that back to me, it sounds a lot more sort of sensible than how I think about what I'm doing. But yes, I, I agree with that, that it's, 
it's that discipline about thinking, what is the thing here that I'm having trouble with? And sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's my emotion yeah. about it or my, oh, but if I say that, then I was wrong, you know, two days ago yeah. and that's awkward. Um, you know, who cares? And if you can get that away and look at it more clear-eyed, um, yes, then you can't be distant from most decisions. You need to be back into them. Sometimes I think that having these roles really allows you to kind of don the armour of that mm-hmm. role. And it gives me a great kind of strength that might be overstating it. So the Solicitor General is a, a very important function in our system of constitution, our constitutional system yes. of you know, government according to law. And you know there are not many handbrakes on executive power. Right. Solicitor General is one of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, also a great facilitator, I would hope, of... Um, government according to law, but sometimes the handbrake. No, that is a that you can't do that, you yeah. shouldn't do that. Uh, have you thought about these issues? And that responsibility, sometimes I think when I'm off to see, you know, senior ministers, the prime minister, it is, again, I think, who am I? Who is this funny girl from Cambridge, you know, heading off over to the Beehive to see incredibly senior cohort of ministers and officials? And like feeling like I'm donning that, yeah. that uniform helps. Anyway, I've really diverged off your question about what were the bumps in the road. But that's an interesting one. I wouldn't mind sitting with that because this role is a very powerful role. Mm. How do you feel about your powerful self? Yeah, and and, and I'm instantly going to say that that I am not powerful alone. Yes, it's a powerful role, but it has to engage the strength of, in our language, the network of lawyers. You know, Mm -hmm. there's about a 1,000 lawyers who work for government, and we have a very well established view of ourselves as a profession of government lawyers because the Solicitor General's function is to be authoritative about what the Crown's view of the law is and to say how the Crown should conduct itself in court and to oversee prosecutions. Well, I can't, no one person can do that on their own, of course, and it's probably trite to say it before that you need to work with everybody else to get that done. And once you share that power in a real way, I don't know the answers just because I'm a Solicitor General. I don't know the answers, you know, maybe at all. And I think it would be a terrible arrogant, it would be terrible to be in that arrogant position of saying, I know the answer because I'm the Solicitor General. Yes. And I think that's a huge responsibility on me to use my role to find out the best way through things. Working with the people who are in agencies or departments where the legal issue arises, who know the content, yeah. who know the business, Boy, work with them. Why would I do differently? Um, and that's always been a really strong in me to work in that collaborative way. Sometimes I think it means that I'm, you know, don't know enough, and I have to, you know, always phone a friend. But in my more confident <laughs> times, I think that actually it's a really strong way to make decisions. Because yeah. yes, finally I have to call it. Um, I will fail if I think I can do that on my own. Yeah. So in some ways, I think yes, powerful. Absolutely. What an enormous responsibility, you know, and a burden, uh, not just a privilege, yes. which it is also, yeah. but the burden of it, um, I do feel that. And but I'm, I'm so lucky that I have a great organisation, you know, senior team around me who are just awesome. In fact, a whole lot of lawyers in this whole network of lawyers in government totally committed to government according to law. So, so yes, I can hear you saying you're lucky, but having an awesome senior leadership team doesn't happen by accident either. No, that's So right. turning to your leadership, what's your greatest strength, do you think, as a leader? I have always put a really high value on nice and being nice uh-huh. and the power of nice. 
And often people challenge me on that and say, well, you know, actually nice is a bit like a doormat and nice is not always what's needed. And I'm sticking to nice as my description of it so far. But what I mean by that is, you know, a people-centered leadership where you care about relationships and you care about how you get to what you're doing, not just what you're doing, really allows you to have a really strong basis for when things get tough and yeah. also to have a really good basis for when things are fun. I mean, I like to have a good time yeah. at work as well as not at work and, I, and I'm highly motivated or no, what's the right word? I'm highly extroverted and yeah. I get all of my energy from, from others, others yeah. or from externally um, to which, you know, lockdown was a real challenge yeah. for me. I, yeah. That was that was hard yakka for partly that reason, partly because the legal issues were, were horrendous. Fast-paced yeah. and mm. scary, but yeah, that, so um, I really like working with people. I think my strength, my leadership strength is something of a, um, I explained this to somebody else who was coaching me once to say, I'm cursed by this thing that I feel in a room of people, I, can, I feel too distracted by the emotion of what's happening. Yeah. She was saying, that is not a curse. That yeah. is a great thing that you have. So many people are in the room have no idea. None yeah. of their radar is not picking up any of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've, so I used but it's to, exhausting mm, at the same time. And so chairing a meeting, you know, a leadership yeah. meeting, I might be having, you know, one person kind of twitching with some sort of offence that they've taken about something that someone else yeah. Has said or done, and that person won't even notice or know. And but you are founding and exhausting is right. Um, but once she said to me, actually, that's a real strength, and you should think about how you work that and how you use that and in your people-centered it. leadership. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, my mother, she's a she was a scary. Oh, she's still alive. She, she's not so scary now. She was a scary, formidable T- person. Tell me about that. I mean, you're raised in New Zealand, immigrant parents, mm. Parsi and mm. Irish heritage. Mm. How has that forged you? Has it? I think, well, I mean, it absolutely must have. Because how could it not? I mean, for one thing, my family and my parents gave me the most stable, loving background to just do whatever, you know, they, my my mother particularly, my father died when I was 22 or three, so, you know, young. He, yeah. I was too young to not have a father. Um, but they raised us knowing or telling us that we could do whatever we wanted. Yeah. Whether they actually ever said that to me or not, I don't know. But that was, you know, and still I have this, you know, this. I'm, I'm a confident person, but still I have this inner voice that tells me otherwise. So I couldn't have had a more strong upbringing in yeah. the idea that I can do anything I want. Um, and funnily, I said that once to one of my sisters and she was like, yeah, but they didn't really mean it. You know, they, <laughs> they meant you can do anything you want as long as we approve of that. Um, but by the time I discovered that it was too late, I had done something yes. that they would have approved of. Immigrant parents, I think that's so interesting, um, and I didn't notice it at the time. But you know, sometimes say now, I didn't, I didn't. My parents are immigrants. I didn't realise that rugby was a religion in this country. You know, some <laughs> things, some whole sort of sections of society, I've completely missed out on, like rugby as our religion. But um, uh, but my father, he was Parsi Indian, and um, he came. They came to New Zealand in the late fifties. And settled here. He um, naturalised as a New Zealander. He set aside his religion and agreed that us children could be raised Catholic. My mother was Catholic. They yeah. had to get permission to get married. And one of the deals with the Pope, I'm sure it was a bit more um, distant <laughs> than that, but was that they would, any children of the marriage would be raised Catholic. Right. And so Dad would stay at home on Sundays and we'd all go to church. And he was really strong in, you know, you know go to church with your mother. Even when we were teenagers, we're like, eh, you're not a Catholic. Why should we be? He's like, you know not the point, off you go. Um, so 
it does it has forged me. What I was saying about my mother before is that she I think I inherited her ability with people because right. she has also had this amazing life where she is a strong leader. I mean, as a young Irish woman, you know, born in the early 30s, she was certainly, um, you know, had few cho- fewer choices than I had. Um, and, and her career stories, now she trained as a nurse, she was the youngest um, matron in her hospital. Right. You know, she had some of the same difficulties that I've had as you progress past people who are older and more senior. And I think, well, why are you that person now? Um, in fact, she and I have just started, sometimes she's 89 and she lives in a rest home and her grip on immediate things is going, but her grip on the past is strong. We sometimes still hear these stories of, so I think that in some ways, I just think I got given this gift of A, the gab, and B, being able to engage with people in a really real way. And that is such a strong leadership function for me. That's fantastic. How has, has gender impacted your leadership or your progression or your career? Again, I must think, you know, surely. But um, I've and actually never, physic- never actually felt that gender was holding me back. I mean, I came through a legal career at a time where, in, in a career in government where, you know, we've had a woman prime minister for probably longer than we've had a man prime minister. We've had the minister of justice, the attorney general, the yeah. chief justice has been a woman the last the current one and the last one. So in some ways, I've had these strong role models in the system that I work in. I haven't felt held back. And yet, I think intellectually, not that I've been held back, but of course, you know, we live in a sexist, racist world. Of, of course, those things have impacted me, maybe about framing who I think I am in the world and where things fit. I'm, I'm not saying that people have been... Um, like mean to me, but maybe it, maybe the impact is actually in me. Um, and this idea that oh, who am I and who am I to say that I'm the sister general and all these strange things are a function of women in society. Yeah, and what role models you have. So what you're saying is that there's a social context which might every now and then say, well, you know, does I, I want to don this jacket? I don't know if it fits. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if I want right. it. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, having really credible role models and mm. the power of mentors has been really interesting in your careers. Mm. At all of at your career, those those crossroads yeah. that you've had someone powerful who's been able to be a great thinking partner yeah. and sounding board and supporter and connector. And so and so exactly. And the idea that um, you know Peter Murray was just my first example of mentoring and I would never have recognised it for that. Mm. But now I recognise that, you know, finding someone who wants the best for you and you can be open with them and they share your values so that you trust them. The thing is annoying about a mentor is that they never tell you the answers. You know, they should be getting the answers out of you. <laughs> so it's um, hard work being with a mentor. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's not They don't say just go over there. Uh, he said it's hard work. But that is what you need to find in a mentor. And I would say that if, that it's worthwhile at any stage, in different stages in life, yeah. picking up an external kind of mentor or coach yeah. to do that with. Yeah. So what's been your most important leadership lesson? I think I think it is this, although I could I probably have others, but I'll try and go for the one that's most important. You know, you hear this thing about the brave leader and the strong leader, and you often think, what is that? And I think the brave and the strong leader is the leader who actually is really open about what they don't know and that they, how do we know it? We don't know everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the brave leader is the person who's kind of out the front saying, come with me, I know what we're doing, is not my model. My model is the brave leader who says, actually, 
you know, these gnarly problems that we have, I don't know how to solve them, what do you think? And who's able to bring out in a constructive way disagreement, the mess that comes with having different perspectives and helping people through to a solution so they can see that solution. I might agree with it or I might not, but actually because I can see how we got there, I'm good with that. So the leader who says, I don't know what I'm doing, it's all very well. You have to stop saying that at some point. You can't keep saying, you can't always say, I've got no idea. But just exposing yourself to be able to get genuine input from other people. um, And you have to do that in a way that people don't think, oh, yes, because she said it, it must be right. Um, It's a bit of a trick because the other lesson I've learned is that um, leaders' voices carry, you know, people, everything you say, people like take something from. With a loudspeaker on. Yeah. yeah, so you better make sure you're saying what you mean to communicate. It's very hard to, well, it, it's the problem with unauthentic leadership, isn't it? That what people say and what they do aren't the same. Yeah. Um, but it, not just when you stand up on the podium and talk as the leader, but when you're in the kitchen making a cup of tea, um, your leadership is speaking to people. And, and realising that... Um, I mean, it hasn't made me, I, th- I think I am myself in all of these areas. But, yeah, so those two things, leadership, kind of the voice matters. Everything yes. you say, people will take something from and then use that to construct a process by which you are getting the best out of what you've got to make the decision that you then have to stand with and go yes. with. So looking back on your career, what advice might you have to your younger self from oh. here? <laughs> um I think I would probably say it's okay not to have a career plan. It's okay to be driven by something else. And and in my case, the something else was doing something that mattered, not giving all my life to my work. Mm -hmm. I've always been very strong on that. Um, And and having a good time sounds a bit light. But um, I have always wanted to be able to enjoy life. Yeah. I mean, enjoy life and enjoy your work. At least on my operating theory, I'm only going to get one shot at this. Yeah. So I might as well enjoy it yeah. and enjoy my work. And I have done both those things, which has been great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, while we close, you know, what would you say to women who are looking to make a difference and forge a leadership career in the public sector? Mm, well, the public sector, you know, as you probably can hear from me, I think it's a great, worthy place to be. I think my advice is to know your to to truly know yourself you know what is it that you bring i think you know i often hear from women who are saying i want to move in my career i need a development opportunity what should it be and i think the answer will depend on what it, who you are about what it is that you will find the most useful thing to bring your skills to bear and to learn something um because when you i think when you know yourself which includes knowing when that voice is getting in your ear, knowing how to relax or understand what's being said, or knowing when to actually change course and be different from your usual uh, mode. Knowing all of those things just allow you the freedom to take opportunities when they come. And It might sound sort of too haphazard, that's been my experience. Um, yeah. That has and worked. I think it didn't sound what, you know, you, I think right at the beginning you said your first mentoring experience, even though you wouldn't have called it that, mm. it was like finding the attributes of a role yeah. where I'm going to thrive and yeah. make a difference yeah. as opposed to necessarily looking at the name of a role, mm. which, uh, you know, gets, and so then we know what it is and that's a wonderful lens and filter mm. through which to look at opportunities. Because I would never have thought about GCSB as a development yeah. opportunity. I wasn't a lawyer. Yeah. I was a leader. 
and letting go of my my experiential skill set, my yeah. thing that I was, yeah. was quite yeah. A hard and B powerful to show me that I actually had a, a whole skill and set. And you were able to let go of that safety yeah. of technical competence mm. and actually move into leadership. Mm. Actually, the other thing I would say to my younger self is, um, you know, I have not fitted the norm or the mould for for Solicitor General, that's for sure. You know, I'm the first woman to hold the role for a start. So yeah. I would I would say to my younger self, don't worry that you don't look right, you know, that you don't kind of fit in, that you're not actually like yeah. a whole lot of other people. Yeah. Um, all, no doubt all those people would say we're individuals ourselves. But anyway, um, I did feel that strongly as a young person. I still feel it now sometimes yeah. that I don't look the part. And I am I am the part. That's I mean, right. so and it doesn't matter. Yeah. And and not to have that do your head in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I think that's... that there is no actual mould for success. Yeah. Just yeah. forge your own. I'm starting to sound like a Nike ad, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> But that is an important lesson that I've learned. Yeah, mm. and that's a really powerful lesson. Una, it's been such a privilege talking to you and such a pleasure. Uh, all of the things that you said from how your public service fire was lit, you know, finding purpose, finding a place where mm. you were going to do what mattered to you mm. and how you did that. Um, the power of mentors, the power of leadership development. It's always a good thing. But I think what, what you've really demonstrated and just telling us your story is that whole self-awareness and self-management mm. and stepping into your leadership identity. Often from the outside, it kind of looks easy. Oh, she obviously knew she wanted to do that. And you step in with confidence. But behind the scene, to hear that mm. level of vulnerability that uh, at all of those crossroads, you were also sitting with a little nagging voice going, uh, you know, am I, this is Seriously? me, am I up for this? Am I capable of doing it? Um, and I really love what you talked about, about feeling when you are actually chief executive, the weight of that, but also how liberating oh, that leadership oh. can be. So I want to wish you all the very best in your future career. Thanks, Thank you Tena. so much for taking the time, Una. It's been such a pleasure. Tēnā Una Jagos. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. If you're enjoying our conversations, do subscribe, rate and review us on your podcast platform and join me again soon. You can also find more information and resources on building your best leadership self on pennydevolk.com, including my blog that covers topics from how to negotiate powerfully as a woman and building your authority through to having your voice heard and boosting confidence, all in support of building your leadership career.